We don't have working hours where people are expected to be around. We don't have synchronous communication uh, expectations very frequently. You can step away from your desk. You can be anywhere, and that's okay. We need to give people the, the latitude to work however they want. Welcome to Rework, a podcast by Basecamp about the better way to work and run your business. Or should I say, welcome back. I'm Waylon Wong. And I'm Sean Hildner. And yes, we are back from summer hiatus with all new episodes of Rework. This is the time when a lot of us are returning to work. School is back in session. And if you're in the U.S. or Canada, you just celebrated Labor Day, which is kind of like um, the last hurrah of the summer. With so much work on the brain, we wanted to remind you not to overdo it. Today on the show, we will hear from Tai Fujimura, who recently wrote an excellent piece on Medium called The Cult of Overwork and How to Avoid It. Waylon and Tai get into how he escaped the cult, how he communicates with clients who might have different expectations, and how setting better boundaries helps build a more diverse workplace. My name is Tai Fujimura. I'm the founder of Cantilever. We're a web design and development company. We have eight people between uh, full and part-time staff, and we're distributed across the U.S. and Canada. Maybe one place to start would be you had come to a realization that you were modeling a culture of overwork um, or kind of a system of overwork for your employees, and you didn't like that that was happening. Can you talk about what led to that epiphany? I think it was a slow process. I think I just started out ingrained with a lot of the ideas that most people have about the relationship between, you know, hours and and output. Especially early on, I really saw a lot of my value as just being able to crank away on projects and put in put in, you know, long weeks and sort of being the workhorse at the company. And so I kind of wanted people to see that because I thought that it was a sign of my own dedication or ability. And the, the reasons behind why I shifted that mentality are uh, layered. I think one of them was having children. Uh, so after I had children, I you know obviously was prioritizing my time with them uh, above work. And that led to me sort of reconsidering the way I looked at my working hours, but also just growing my team and seeing more people and seeing the ways in which people ended up doing the best and noticing that that was so rarely when people were up until two in the morning writing JavaScript, you know, and, you know, as I mentioned in the piece, I'm, I'm still prone to long weeks and, and that's also part of running a business. And it's, it's, you know, it's a part of work sometimes, you know, sometimes you have a crunch and you need to get things done quicker and you need to push for a little while and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think what, what is an issue is when uh, overwork is a pervasive part of a company's culture uh, because it has a lot of deleterious effects, not only on actual productivity over the long run, but on the way that you can construct your team and on the the uh, character and, and uh, attitude within the company. If you would send an email or, you know, have like a commit recorded at like two in the morning or something like early morning outside of um, what's considered normal working hours, would you expect a response back? Or were you just hoping that, um, and this could have been a subconscious thing entirely, um, were you hoping just that employees would see like the timestamp on that particular thing and be like, okay, like this, this means he is, you know, really committed and, and up working hard? Yeah, exactly. I think I was hoping that there was some sort of signal sent 
by the fact that, you know, people in the office would see me there as they were leaving and they would see me there as they were coming in and it would sort of rub off to the rest of the company that this is a place where you, you work really hard. Um, and I think that's pretty intuitive, uh, especially in our, our cultural context of technology. I, I wasn't going so far as to really, you know, demand a lot of like insane hours from people. Uh, but I think I was just kind of hoping that my dedication would become other people's dedication. And what I was missing was that, you know, people can be incredibly dedicated without necessarily committing those kind of hours to work. And I think that's, that's the mistake that a lot of companies fall into is that hours become kind of a proxy for devotion and, and attachment to the mission. And when that happens, it has the side effect that the only people who you ever consider devoted to your mission are people who have the time to put in that kind of energy. So what it does is it sort of artificially filters down who you consider to be a viable or a dedicated team member to the people who can, uh, who can commit that, that amount of time. And that's just such a small segment of the population. And that's part of why, uh, companies that, that do this end up being, uh, you know, homogenous and, and have kind of a monoculture that, you know, certainly as a founder, I really want to avoid. When, when you were starting to reconsider um, the, this pattern or behavior, did you think about where these toxic notions of work had come from? I, I ask this because I feel like I'm starting to think about this more for myself, um, almost going back as like an anthropologist being like, where did this come from? You know, like, what was <laughs> yeah, it? Was it something I yeah. saw modeled when I was a child? Was it, you know, is it in the popular culture I somehow absorbed when I was little? Like what I'm, I'm, I'm starting to interrogate for myself where like these cultural notions of work and workaholism come from. And I was wondering if you um, did any of this um, same thinking too, because I think it's, it's an interesting exercise to try to like pin down the cause, you know? You know, if you if you think back to sort of agricultural or, you know, even prior to that, like hunter gatherer societies, you have to put in a lot of effort in order to survive. And so I think there's a, a certain amount of um, fundamental ingrained bias towards, you know, seeing effort and seeing seeing, you know, energy expended as sort of a proxy for your likelihood of survival or of, you know, being able to provide for your family or whatever. And that that kind of makes sense from a biological perspective. But I think the concept of the hour as kind of a unit of work is perhaps a product of industrialization. I think if you, if you look at work in purely mechanistic terms, it's going to be very tempting for you to see things that way. One influence in my life that uh, kind of snuck its way into the piece is uh, my dad is a painter. And as a painter, you know, if he just tries to crank out as many paintings as he possibly can, that is not going to lead to the outcomes that he's looking for. He, he needs to have time in his life to think and to, to explore different ideas and to reflect and to talk to people and interact with people. And that, that's ultimately what allows him to, to make a painting. And the actual energy of doing it happens in a, a very short amount of time. The relationship between hours expended and output is not as clear cut as you think. And especially in a, a knowledge work context, the entirety of your life supports your work in some regard. You know, if, I, if I'm designing a website, I can't tell you how many times we've designed something where because I saw something in my daily life, 
you know, I saw some graffiti on the street or I was clicking around some, some website that I was interested in or, you know, pursuing some other interest of mine or learning how to cook or, you know, whatever it is, all these different influences permeate your work and your design becomes drawn from that milieu. It's so hard to pin down the reasons why your work was successful and, you know, certainly spending more time at the office for a lot of people is not going to be uh, the thing that they really need to do to take it to the next level. Yeah. And you say in the piece that you started noticing among the employees and the people you manage that about 30 hours was a good baseline, right? That if you push them to go beyond 30 hours in a week, that there would be that drop off in quality and in productivity, right? Yeah, I think that's about right. I think um, Cal Newport is a, a social scientist who I kind of referenced in the piece as well. He has posited that you can get somewhere between three and six or four and seven hours of really good creative or, or technical work in a day. That's only going to be able to happen if you're able to block off that time and really spend that time properly, which is a, another topic which I'd love to touch on. But that that four to seven hours in a day would translate over over the course of a week that's you know 20 30 hours uh, where you're really getting your your hardcore focused time knowledge work done whether that's whether that's design development writing uh, you know podcasting whatever it is and you're going to need the rest of your time to sort of support that creative output that you're making so you're going to need to um, to spend time researching spend time interacting with people networking and just you know, doing doing all the day to day things that we need to do in order to work, like status meetings and stuff like that, filling out your your automated Basecamp questions, things like that. <laughs> um, so oh, you so, don't just skip them like I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, occasionally guilty, I, I try to remember. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think I think that's a, a pretty good benchmark. If you have people working under you, or if you're a, a, a knowledge worker and you're kind of wondering like what's that optimum point, I think you should be shooting for. Uh, something like that. And one model that I like to to use and encourage people at the company to use is to block off some amount of time every day. So on my calendar, uh, I have uh, four hours in the morning from 8 to 12 or 8 to 11.45. That is uh, no meetings. I try to, to do nothing but tackle the most important challenges of my day. Uh, and that's a, a pivotal thing in me progressing and getting the things that I need to get done finished. Yeah, I mean, I think that feeds into this larger conversation about let's look at units of time in a better way, right? In the same way that you reject the notion that one pure hour equals some, you know, is is like a pure proxy for productivity. (laughs) It also, like, if you're saying we only need 30 hours a week, you also have to be like, well, those 30 hours have to be real, you know, or those four to six hours a day have to be real hours, not like fake work hours, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And there's, there's a, um, a corollary there with my, my main argument in the piece and, and something I think a lot of firms are realizing, which is that if you have people in your office for 80 hours a week, they are not doing 80 hours worth of work. Good, oh, they're not? Good luck with that. <laughs> people who are working that amount of time just have to, just biologically need to be taking mental breaks in order to stay functional and like literally like stay alive. So people who are in the office for that amount of time are, are not giving you the output that you're thinking. And they're filling that time with things that sort of approximate 
leisure or approximate uh, breathing room or space, but aren't actually that, that people have an amount of sustained focus that they can realistically give. And as an employer, I think, you know, certainly the way I perceive the optimal strategy is to give people that space and not demand any of their other time. So they can spend the rest of their time the way that they want. And as long as we're giving them that time to dig in on the, the most important challenges that they face, they're going to be just as productive as, as if they spent twice as much time ostensibly working. After the break, we'll get into how to start making those changes toward a healthier work culture. But first, let's talk about Basecamp. Basecamp is the app for managing projects the right way. Without Basecamp, projects feel scattered, things slip. It's tough to see where things stand and people get stressed. That's where Basecamp comes in. Everything's organized in one place, you're on top of things, progress is clear, and a sense of calm sets in. In fact, let me have Basecamp CEO Jason Fried tell you a bit more. So a lot of our customers have something in common that's not industry or company size necessarily, but it's situation. They've gotten to the point where things feel like stuff's getting a bit out of control. Maybe they're growing a little bit too fast or they're taking on too many projects. And however they're working, just they know it's not quite working anymore. They're doing it, but something's not right. So they begin looking for something to fix this. And a lot of them turn to to to-do tools to begin with. The problem with to-do tools is that they let you make really long lists that you'll never do. So people start there and they realize like this isn't working either. And they start to look at a chat tool and chat's great, but there's a lot of conversations that don't need to happen and it doesn't really help you organize things. So eventually people start to look for something that integrates all these different things, tasks, schedules, communication. And that's when they land on Basecamp and they pick Basecamp up and they finally realize that the work they have that's sort of scattered all over the place doesn't have to be that way and they can get things back under control. Find out more and try Basecamp for free at Basecamp.com. In terms of practical changes that you put into effect um, as a response to this, you mentioned now blocking out your time in the morning for really focused work where you don't have meetings. What were some other things that you did for the rest of your employees to create the kind of culture of healthy work that you wanted? A lot of it goes hand in hand with going remote. We had intended for it to be a, a New York-centric agency, sort of traditional style with an office. We had an office in, in midtown Manhattan. And over time, we found that the people who we were really vibing with and who got our philosophy were remote. We slowly drifted into becoming a remote studio, and it didn't fully happen until uh, maybe three years ago. That's part of my shift or, or when I started thinking about or implementing more of these things was when you're remote, you don't really even have the option to embrace a culture of overwork, a FaceTime culture, because there's no FaceTime. So you can't exactly breathe down people's necks for not being in the office when you don't know exactly when they are or aren't in the office. So I think it, it forced us into a mode where we try to have very clear expectations about you know how long people need to be working, uh, what people need to be doing, how long we're expecting things to take. That's all written. That helps to clarify that, no, I'm not expecting to get an email from you at two in the morning. We encourage people in the company to not have their pings on uh, for most things because we don't want to, to set that expectation that you need to get back right away. Going remote really led us to naturally find a lot of these techniques that I think would be helpful for a lot of organizations. They just lead to people who are so much happier and so much more able and free to do uh, the work that they want in the way that they want to. 
how do you balance the protection of these boundaries that you've created with client work? They're sending me the emails at all hours of the night, and I don't want to get fired if I don't respond right away. And so you're in the thick of it. You're doing client work, and you're pursuing new clients and things like that. So how do you um, balance those things? When it comes to clients, you do have to be a little bit more sensitive to what their working style is. And you have to identify early on what they're expecting of you when it comes to communication. But we find that even our clients who have a working style that's very synchronous, very latest and loudest, are generally okay with the way that we operate as long as we're clear and open about the fact that we're doing that. Personally, the way I manage my uh, workflow is I check my all my inputs, aka email, Basecamp, any other, you know, Trello or Asana or anything we're using on a project. I try to check those things once a day. And in most situations, that's fine. Clients, you know, get get an email from me every single day in the morning responding to everything that they sent throughout the prior day. I have some clients who have uh, higher expectations and that's there's no problem with that. So when I'm working on a project with those clients, I might check twice a day or three times a day. But I don't have to check all the time because even for, for a client who is extremely sensitive to the timing of, of emails, if I'm answering their emails within three hours, that's, that's going to be fine. And the way that we usually explain this to clients is that what's good for us is good for them. If we are able to focus, that's going to be reflected in the final product. Our working style is most critically there to keep us sane. Uh, but what it does is produces better websites. It, we, we write better code because we have time to focus and our clients are, are extremely invested in us writing really good code for them. Um, and I wanted to go back to one thing that you had mentioned before that is a really big part of the piece you wrote, which is um, getting away from the monoculture and how creating a more healthy work culture then diversifies your employee base and allows more people of different backgrounds and contexts to be able to do good work for you. Um, and in particular, you had come to some uh, realizations about working parents and moms in the workplace. Can you talk a little bit about that? So I mentioned earlier that part of my shift in in my thinking and philosophy about work was when I had my children and realizing that you know now I have an even more important job to do every day that can be just as time consuming as my career. The way that we try to approach anyone who has any sort of you know extreme pressure on their time, whether they're taking care of children or taking care of a parent or they have a health condition, is to determine the working model that's going to be best for them in their particular situation. Within our team, we don't have sort of one salary level with one requirement as to you know how much work you're doing and how many hours you're putting in. Everybody kind of has their own thing, and it's all designed specifically to fit that person's life. So within our team, we have a, a huge diversity of agreements with you know compensation and benefits and expectations. People work for your company not because they just love your company and want it to succeed. <laughs> as much as that may be true, and it's easy to fall into that trap as a founder, especially if you're you're you know doing something really important. People work for you because of the effect that working for you has on their life. They are able to support their family because of the work that they're doing within your company. Or they're able to advance in their career because of the work that they're doing for you. So I think when it comes to parents, you want to set things up in a way that they're actually gleaning all the benefit 
from working for your company that they should when it comes to their children and what they're able to do with their children. You know, for a lot of people, that will mean uh, primarily supporting their children financially. But for most parents, it's going to include time as well. We know also that parents are extremely good at avoiding distraction. <laughs> Because in order to get anything done as a parent, you have to be able to shut something off mentally and get down to work. Being a parent trains you to focus in, you know, short and, and succinct batches of time. So we trust that the, the parents who we work with are going to be able to, to do that. Um, and we don't put particular expectations around them that would jeopardize their ability to enjoy the fruits of their labor when it comes to time with their family. Yeah. And even going beyond that, you've now started to introduce some parental leave benefits, right? Which seems like an enormous challenge given how small your company is. Um, can you talk a little bit about doing that? Yeah, so it was on our wish list for a long time. Um, I always felt, uh, you know, pretty pretty rotten about it, really, that we didn't have any sort of policy in place, especially because you know we really believe in these ideas, and you know I want to talk about them and I want to evangelize them, but I feel like we have to walk the walk a little bit more. So we hadn't had parental leave for a long time. We did some research, and we were finding that most people who work in the U.S. have no form of parental. Uh, benefits at all, no time off at all. Um, if if you don't have it through your state, which only a couple states do, so we felt like having something is a lot better than having nothing. And so we just kind of decided on what we could realistically afford, given you know the size of our team and the likelihood that someone would need it. We just set up a uh, two week benefit for new parents, where they're going to receive two weeks of whatever their normal compensation is. You know, it's not the Cadillac uh, benefits that you can get from a, a wonderful company like Basecamp, um, <laughs> but it's it's what we can realistically do, and it's a starting point to grow. We can tell our our people that you have this little bit of extra security that we have your back. One thing that makes our uh, policy unique is, as I mentioned, everybody has their own sort of agreement with the company. So we have a lot of people who are on uh, hourly compensation. My understanding is that most people who have hourly compensation, even if their company does offer some sort of parental leave, that wouldn't necessarily apply to you. But since that's such a big part of our team, uh, we specifically carved that out into the policy. So if you are an hourly worker, uh, your two weeks would just be an average of your normal two weeks of pay through cantilever. And you know, we hope that it's helpful. We haven't had to use it yet, but we're prepared. It's it's accommodated for in our budgeting. I feel. Uh, a lot better about uh, where we're at, and excited to improve going forward. I really like that term, the cult of overwork, which you credit to um, James Surowiecki at the New Yorker. And it's like you escaped from that cult, you know, like you were able to unplug <laughs> from it. Um, you're able to get out um, because it's like I was thinking about like what does a cult do, and a cult is it's groupthink, right? But it also it takes your money, it takes all of your time. It cuts you off from your family and your loved ones, um, and it and it gaslights you to believe that um, everyone else who's telling you there's a different way or another way, a better way, a healthier way, that they're all lying to you. <laughs> and that's that is actually what this culture of overwork does. It like checks all those boxes of right, right. a traditional cult for me, at least. Um, Yeah, I think there's there's certainly a uh, reality distortion field when it comes to a lot of these companies. <laughs> that term "cult of overwork" is especially 
uh, on the nose because it ultimately is something that doesn't actually help you all that much. So it's really about a cultural expectation and a, a setting of uh, values that you're going to um, share with people, but it's not actually something that's going to produce the results you're looking for. I, I talk to people who work in environments like this and everybody knows from the CEO on down that this is not creating the best results, but it's the way things have always been done. It's a way that they can sort of signal to potential applicants and to clients that they're serious. And, you know, that, that means something that carries some currency because the people who adhere to this philosophy, they seek vendors and partners who also share that philosophy and who are willing to quote unquote, do what it takes to, to, you know, be a part of their business. So it creates this, this sense that what's important is the adherence to the orthodoxy of the group and not necessarily the actual output that you're exhibiting. So I think that analogy is, is really strong and helps explain why the, this pattern and this philosophy is uh, weak and why there's opportunities to change it. And I think you know, we hope to be a part of the counter-revolution that will improve work for lots of people. Rework is produced by Sean Hildner and me, Waylon Wong. Our theme music is Broken by Design by Clipart. If you'd like to read Ty's full piece, we'll have a link to it in our show notes, which you can find at rework.fm. We're on Twitter at Rework Podcast, and you can leave us a voicemail at 708-628-7850. Oh my God, can you explain the plot of Wild Hearts Can't Be Free? What is it called? Uh, Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken. Correct. Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken is a film from my childhood. It was a Disney film, live action, and it stars the actress Gabriel Anwar and the guy who is the love interest in 16 Candles. Okay. And it takes place in the de- like the Depression era, and it's about this young girl who gets trained to do this circus act where she rides a horse up um, onto like a tall diving platform and then they jump off the diving platform into a big pool of water. Amazing. And in the film, something goes wrong when she's doing this trick. She has her eyes open, I think, when she hits the water, so she goes completely blind. And then the rest of the film is about her learning to do this trick while blind. I've only ever seen the last, the final scene. Oh, because our coworker sent it to you? Correct. What did you think? Um, it was super cheesy. <laughs> well, our coworker Andrew, who's the one who sent this to us, because Andrew and I have discussed this movie a lot. I think it was like very formative in our childhoods. You know how like when you watch something when you're little and then you don't really remember all of it, but it becomes this kind of primal memory where you just have images that are just kind of stuck in your brain in a very, very deep place. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes you picture these scenes and you're like, did I dream it? Or is that actually <laughs> right. a thing? And then you Google and you're like, oh no, this is just a movie I watched a bunch when I was little. Uh, would you watch this movie again? I would, but I'm worried that it's not going to hold up on a rewatch. So mm-hmm. I would rather leave it in this kind of like mylar wrapped sure. um, container in my brain. I don't know how this relates though.
How does this relate back to the cult of overwork? Oh, it doesn't. But we're just getting back in the swing of things from summer break. <laughs> <laughs>